My name is Adam. If we haven't met, I'm a part of the team here at Oasis Church, and it's great to be with you this morning. You know, it was back in 1992 when R.E.M., the American rock band, they sang, Everybody Hurts. Everybody cries sometimes. Everybody hurts. Now, they got it right. Everybody hurts in life. Even Christians, even those who love God and follow Jesus. This is why last week we kicked off a a brand new sermon series which we've called When Life Hurts. For the next few weeks we're exploring comfort from God's Word for some of life's most painful problems. Now last week we began by exploring grief. Grief is relevant for all of us. And if it's not yet in your life, then it will be someday. So if you missed last week's sermon, I'd encourage you to to check it out online. Today, we're going to explore the topic of fear. Now, I heard a a story this week about a, a little boy. His mom was putting him to bed one night, but there was a thunderstorm that was raging outside. Now his mom was about to turn off the light and and leave the room, but then she heard this small trembling voice say, Mom, can't you stay with me for the whole night? Now his mom smiled and and, and gave him a a little hug and said, I can't, dear. I have to sleep in in my bedroom with Dad. Now there was a a bit of a pause before a, a small voice finally said, the big sissy. (laughs) Some are still thinking about it. (laughs) The truth is, whoever we are, whether we're a child or an adult, a man or a woman, rich or poor, whether we're big and brawny or whether we're slight and skinny, we all wrestle with fear. Fear is a universal human experience. And fear is caused by all different kinds of factors. I mean, if I was to ask you, what are you afraid of? There might be some obvious answers. You might say, well, I'm afraid of spiders. Or I'm afraid of heights. Or of public speaking. Or I'm afraid of flying. Or needles. Or large crowds. Or small spaces which according to an ABC News article I read this week, are some of our most common fears. But of course, our fear can go deeper as well. If we're being really honest with ourselves, we might say, well, I'm afraid of disease or economic downturn or death. I'm afraid of being laughed at by others. I'm afraid of not being liked by others. I'm afraid of being rejected by God. I'm afraid of failure. I'm afraid of losing my job. I'm afraid of being lonely. And on and on we could go. Our fears are deep and diverse. We all wrestle with fear. In fact, fear could be considered the most primal, fundamental human emotion. 
Let me explain it this way. I've seen three babies born in my life. I don't remember my own, so I've just seen my three children being born. And each of them has come out crying. Why? Is it a tears of joy? Probably not. Tears of grief? I don't think so. What about tears of pain? Maybe. I mean, they've just been through quite the journey. More likely that these, these are tears of fear. I mean, think about it. This newborn has just spent nine months in the dark, getting lots of sleep, nice soft walls around them, floating in a nice warm bath with food and drink on tap. <laughs> Sounds like a pretty good deal. But then, all of a sudden, they're forced from the exit, which isn't a, a comfortable experience for anyone involved. And when they emerge, it's bright and it's cold and it's scary. They've got a finger being shoved down their throat or they're being smacked on the back, being placed on a cold scale. It's no wonder that they're crying. Scary. See, our journey in life begins with fear. And unfortunately, the fear doesn't end there. Because as we move through life, it often gets not less scary, but more scary. We all wrestle with fear. It's a big part of life in this world. And so we need to know what God's word says to us about how to navigate our fears. Now, like grief, the Bible actually has a lot to say about fear. In fact, the command, do not fear, it's one of the most repeated commands in the Bible. It's been said, maybe you've heard, that the, this command, do not fear, appears 365 times in the Bible, which is one command for every day of the year. Now, I don't know if that's true or not. I didn't take the time this week to, to count them up. But either way it's clear that God does not want us to be consumed by fear. Now, this doesn't mean that God doesn't want us to ever be afraid. We're going to see that fear can actually be very good and very necessary. But God does not want our lives to be dominated by fear. So today, we're going to turn to God's Word to see what it has to say to us about navigating our fears. Now, if you have your growth group guide there in front of you, you'll see that the passage for today is Psalm 56. But I would actually like to take us to a different place. I'd like to take us today to Psalm 3. Now, both these psalms are very similar. They're both psalms of David. They're both from a time in his life when he was on the run and under attack. Both from a time in his life when he was fearing for his life. And so both these psalms are going to be valuable for us. I mean, if you're in a growth group, the, the growth group questions on Psalm 56 will still be applicable and they'll still be valuable. But Psalm 3 gives us a model for how David navigated his fear, for how David prayed through and processed his fears. And so we're going to turn to this psalm together to see what we can learn from it. And as we work our way through it, I heard a, a great sermon this week by Tim Keller on this psalm, and I want to share some of his insights with you as well. So if you don't have your Bible there in front of you at Psalm 3, you can follow along on the screen. This is what God's Word says, Psalm 3. A psalm of David when he fled from his son Absalom. Verse 1. 
Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. But you, Lord, are a shield around me, my glory, the one who lifts my head high. I call out to the Lord and he answers me from his holy mountain. I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear, though tens of thousands assail me on every side. Arise, Lord, deliver me, my God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. Now, to give you some background, as I've mentioned, this psalm was written by David. David, of course, was the king of the nation of Israel. God had chosen him to lead his people. But towards the end of his life and his career, David's son Absalom formed an army and started a coup. He wanted to take the throne of David for himself. And so David was forced to flee into the wilderness with just a few hundred people while Absalom chased him with this army of over 12,000 people, 12,000 soldiers. You can read all about it in 2 Samuel chapter 15 and following. But it's fair to say that this was a very bad day at the office for David. Think about the pain and the fear and the uncertainty that he must have been experiencing. And it's from this place that David writes Psalm 3. And what we see is how David navigates his fear. And we essentially see him do three things in this psalm, which are the three things you and I must do as well. The first, if you're taking notes, is this. The first step is to name your fears. Name your fears. This is what David does in verses 1 and 2. I won't read them again, but look at it on the screen there. Notice the repeated word. David says, how many, how many, many. In other words, David is surrounded by his enemies. His fear is being driven by the 12,000 soldiers that want to kill him. Pretty good reason to be afraid, isn't it? But notice that like so many of our fears, there is another side of the coin. There is a deeper layer. You see it in verse 2. Many are saying of me, David says, God will not deliver him. They're saying to David, God is through with you. God is finished with you. God does not love you. God will not save you. In other words, David is not just being attacked physically, David is also being attacked psychologically and spiritually as well. They're not just trying to destroy his body, they're trying to destroy his identity, his sense of self, his status. And the point is that David's fear is complex, it's multifaceted, and this helps us to understand fear as well, because fear is complex. I mean, at its most basic level, fear is good and healthy. Fear is an instinctive response to a very clear and present danger. So I'm sure you've had this happen. You know, there's an obvious danger or threat which kind of activates all of your adrenal glands. It floods your body with adrenaline. It gives you great strength and clarity so that you're ready to save yourself or to save others. 
So for example, imagine you're at the park and you see your toddler running straight towards a busy road. The ball is bouncing onto the road and they are chasing it without looking at anything else that's going on except that ball. Now in that moment, you are going to run faster than Usain Bolt. You are going to run faster than you ever thought possible. Why? Because fear moves you and motivates you to action. I mean, you hear these stories, don't you? When when someone is threatened with life and someone just exhibits this kind of superhuman strength and ability. This is what fear does. It moves us. It motivates us. And this is why fear can be a good thing. But at the other end of the spectrum, there's another kind of fear which is not good or constructive for us. And we've come to know it as anxiety. Now, anxiety is related to fear, but it's different in a few key ways. Fear is very specific and identifiable. My toddler is running towards the road. There is a spider in my house. This plane is getting a little bit bumpy. Someone, our fearless drummer Tom, came up to me between the servers and said, why are you talking about turbulence? You're making my palms sweat just sitting there. Fear is very specific. But anxiety, on the other hand, is vague. It's generalized. It's undefined. It doesn't seem to have an identifiable source. It's kind of this vague feeling of dread or weakness or failure. Additionally, fear is temporary and short-term. It kind of moves us to action in a short burst of time. Anxiety, on the other hand, tends to be more long-term. It's this deeper kind of ongoing fear which doesn't motivate you and move you to action but actually can can paralyze you and debilitate you. In other words, if fear is a little bit like a thunderstorm, it sweeps through very suddenly and very violently. Anxiety is like days and days of nonstop drizzle. There's not just a kind of a few clouds in the sky that are sweeping through, but rather the whole sky seems to be grey and dark and miserable. And this seems to be David's experience. There is the immediate and obvious threat, the 12,000 people that want to kill him. But there's also the more subtle threat. Those who are saying to him, God doesn't love you, God doesn't care about you, God is finished with you. And the question is, what does David do? How does David respond to his fears? And this brings us to our second point, which is in verses 3 to 6. The first step is to name your fears. This is what David does. The second step is to praise your God. This is what David goes on to do, especially in verse 3. He confronts his fears with the character of God. He reminds himself of who his God is. Look there what he says in verse 3. The first thing he says is, but you, Lord, are a shield around me. Now, what does a shield do? Protects you from attack. Now, when do you wear a shield? When you're in danger. I mean, when I get up in the morning and get dressed for work or get dressed for church, I generally don't put a shield on because I'm not expecting any danger. There hasn't been any you know, arrows come flying up from the congregation yet. I'm sure there's still time, but not yet. You see, you only wear a shield when you're expecting danger, when you're expecting some arrows to fly. 
And so when David says that God is a shield around him, he's not saying that God is just going to pluck him out of the dangerous situation. He's not saying that God is just going to remove everything that is making him fearful. He's saying that God is going to go with him through the danger and through the difficulty. And this is what you see all throughout the Bible. I mean, when the Bible says to us, do not fear, listen very carefully, it's not saying do not fear because there's nothing in this life that is fearful. There's lots of things in this life that are fearful. The Bible is saying do not fear because the God of the universe, the God who made you, the God who loves you, the God who knows you, the God who gave his son for you, he's with you. You know, Selena Fife, many of you would know Selena and her husband David. Uh, they've been part of our church for a bit over a year now. And earlier this year, Selena was diagnosed with an aggressive breast cancer. Now, praise God, the treatment that she's receiving, which is ongoing, it, it seems to have been effective so far, that the cancer is shrinking. But a couple of months ago, just as Selena started treatment, she, she wrote a reflection on Psalm 73. And in particular, verse 23, which says this, Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. And I want to share with you what, what Selena wrote as she was reflecting on this verse. She writes, I look back on the last year of my life and see how God has done this. He has brought my husband and I into a church where people are praying for us and caring for us. The job that I thought I needed didn't come along and now I can go through treatment without worrying about the extra responsibilities it would have brought. And he shows me how he has been holding my hand through these last few weeks, opening doors and appointments, putting caring and knowledgeable people around me who are guiding my treatment. We have family who love us. Even in the little things, I see his hand. A notebook that I picked up at Kurong with a Bible verse on each page has become my medical journal. And through this difficult time, we know God's presence is with us, his peace, his guidance, and a calmness he has given us through this storm. No matter where we are, even when our bodies fail, God is with us, holding us, guiding us, and giving us his strength. And this is what David means when he says, you are a shield around me. It's the same thing David wrote in Psalm 23, which we read at the start of the service. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. It's the first thing that David recognizes about God. But that's not where he stops. He goes on, he says to God, you're not only my shield, you're also my glory. That's what he says there in verse 3. Now, glory is a, a massive word in the Bible. It's the Hebrew word kavod. And it literally means heavy or weighty. It means significance or importance. David is saying to God, you are my significance. You are my importance. You are my security. Now, think about this, because David, at this point in his life, he has lost everything that gave his life significance. His family is coming apart at the seams. His own son wants to kill him. His moral reputation is in tatters after the episode with Bathsheba and Uriah. 
His power and his position are gone. He is hiding in the wilderness with just a few hundred people around him. Everything in David's life which gave him a sense of security and significance, it has crumbled beneath him. And friends, this is what drives so much of our worry and our fear and our anxiety. It's building our lives on temporary and finite things. It's building our lives on things which cannot hold us up. The the great theologian Augustine from the, the third century, he said that our perpetual discontent, our perpetual worry, it's because, listen to this, we seek the happy life in the region of death. In other words, he's saying we look for security where there is no security. We build our lives on things that cannot and do not last. And this is true even for good things. I mean, even good things like our families and our money and our jobs and our intellect and our possessions. Anything other than God, it does not ultimately last. And if we're building our lives on these things, it's going to leave us anxious and afraid because we're going to be always worried that we're going to lose them. And this seems to have been what happened for David. Everything in his life has crumbled away. He's at rock bottom. He's flat on his back. And isn't it when you're flat on your back that you often look up? And this is what David is doing. He's now saying to God, no, God, I recognize now that you are my glory. You are my ultimate security. You are my ultimate significance. He actually says there in verse 3 that God is the one who lifts my head high. It's a beautiful image because you can imagine David's head is is down right now. He's lost everything. He's made a mess of his life. And now he's saying, I'm not actually the one that lifts my head. I have no confidence in myself. I mean, I took everything that God gave me and I ruined it. But here, he believes that God is not finished with him, that God has not abandoned him. He says, God lifts my head high. Now, how can he really say this? Because as we've just said, his life is a mess. It's a shambles. And when our life is a mess, we usually take that as a sign of God's displeasure. We might even assume it's a sign of God's judgment on us. But David is confident that God has not abandoned him. Why? Well, the answer is in, in verse 4. He says, I call out to the Lord, and he answers me from his holy mountain. Now, what's this mountain all about? Well, this is Mount Zion in Jerusalem. This is the mountain on which the temple had been built. Now, what was the temple? The place of God's presence and the place where sacrifice for sin was made, where animals were offered for the sins of the people. You see, David realizes that God is not finished with him because he realizes that God has made a way for him to have his sins dealt with. He realizes that God has made a way for those who have made terrible decisions, for those who have committed terrible sins, to still approach God with confidence, to still have God lift his head high. And friends, isn't it true that David doesn't know what we know? He knows in part but he hasn't seen all that we've seen in the Lord Jesus. See, Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice for our sin, the once-for-all sacrifice for our sins, so that we who are unrighteous can come into the presence of a righteous God. How much more 
can you and I say with confidence, God, you are my glory. You are the lifter of my head. How much more? Now, what does this all mean for David? Well, look at verse 5. It means he can get a good night's sleep. (laughs) That's a gift from God. He says, I will sleep soundly at night. Verse 6, he says, even though I'm surrounded by enemies, I will not fear. Now, David's external situation hasn't changed. His enemies haven't disappeared. But David's heart has changed. His enemies have become smaller when he looks at them in comparison to his God. Because this is what David does. This is how he navigates his fear. He names his fears, and then he praises his God. And his enemies look a bit smaller in the sight of his God. But that's not all that David does. There's one final step that he takes in this this psalm. And it's our third point, which is name your fears, praise your God, and bring your requests. Look at what David says in verse 7. Arise, Lord, deliver me, my God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. Now, if I heard my kids arguing in the next room, one of them has taken a toy off the other, and I hear one of them say, Arise, Lord, deliver me. Strike them on the jaw. Break their teeth. I'm probably going to have something to say to them. I'll be impressed that they're quoting scripture. But I'll probably talk to them about kind words and and so on and so forth. I mean, David seems pretty worked up, doesn't he? Pretty strong what he's saying here. We might even think he's taken it a little bit too far. But we forget that there is a real wrong that has been done here. There is a real injustice that is taking place. Absalom is unjustly trying to steal the throne from David, the throne which God had given to him. And so David is not pretending that everything's okay. Everything's fine. Doesn't matter. No, there are some things in this world that are worth getting angry about. David is rightly not stuffing his emotions down. But neither here is he just kind of letting them rip. He's not saying, you know, taking matters into his own hands. He's not saying, I'll strike their jaw. I'll break their teeth. No, he's handing the situation over to God. He's handing his enemies over to God. He's asking God to act. And I think it's intentional that David kind of refers to the mouth region, the jaw and the teeth. Because remember what David's enemies were doing? They're saying about him, God doesn't care about you. God doesn't love you. God's not going to deliver you. Now, David is God's chosen and anointed king. And so he seems to be saying to God, prove them wrong. Prove their false claims to be wrong. Obliterate them. And interestingly enough, this is what happens. David is rescued and restored by God, and he doesn't have to lift a finger. Apparently, Absalom was a a very good-looking man, and apparently he had very, very long hair. And he was very, very vain about his very, very long hair. And so he's fighting in the battle, and his long hair gets caught in a tree. And he's stuck, and it's enough time for someone to run a spear through him. And the rebellion is over. God delivers David from his enemies. 
And Psalm 3 shows us David's journey through his fear. He names his fears, he praises his God, and then he asks for help. And I want to close by asking you, what would it look like in your life for you to take the same journey? To name your fears. To say, what am I afraid of? What is a fear in my life right now? And why am I afraid of those things? And don't stop there. Then begin to praise your God. Begin to confront your fears with the truth about God. Begin to remind yourself of who God is and what he's done for you. And then let it lead you to ask for his help. And as we do this, we remember that God has given us the ultimate help that we need. That God in Jesus Christ has dealt with the greatest danger that you and I face. I mean, our greatest danger is God's judgment on our sin and the reality of death that awaits us at the end. Those two things make all other dangers pale in comparison. And God in Jesus Christ has dealt with them once and for all. On the cross, Jesus absorbs our judgment. And through his resurrection, Jesus defeats death once and for all. And this is why we sing, you know, the first song that we sang. This is why we read in, in Romans that nothing, not even death, can separate us from God's love. And when we live with an awareness of this reality, it begins to lead us into a life of being able to, to navigate our fears. It's not to say we won't need help from our friends from our church family, from professionals. But when we know that God has dealt with our greatest enemy, with our greatest danger, we can begin to move forward in hope. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Thank you that you have not left us alone. Thank you that though we enter into this world with a cry of fear, because of all that you've done for us in Jesus, we can leave this world and enter into the next, not with a cry of fear, but with a cry of confidence and joy. Because you, in your son Jesus, have defeated our enemies. You have dealt with our greatest danger and our greatest threat. And so Lord, as we meditate on this reality, help our very real fears to begin to shrink in the light of your glory and grace. And help us to begin to put one step, one foot in front of the other. As we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, and as we look ahead to that great day when our faith will be made sight. And we pray this in his good name and all God's people said, Amen.